1859, the United States and Great Britain nearly went to war because of a pig. It's a true story. Uh, both Britain and the U.S. had laid claim to uh, the San Juan Islands, which is a, some islands located between the northwest part of the U.S. and Vancouver Island in British Columbia. Uh, but the situation became tense when an American farmer named Lyman Cutler shot and killed a, a pig who was eating the potatoes of his garden. Uh, as it turned out, the pig was owned by an Irishman named Charles Griffin, uh, a representative uh, there on the island of Britain's Hudson Bay Company. Uh, Cutler offered Griffin 10 bucks uh, as compensation for killing the pig, but Griffin, of course, demanded more. He demanded something like $100 for the grievance, and the incident soon escalated, and both sides began to gather forces on their respective sides of the island. And, and seriously, friends, the situation became tense enough that a full-blown armed conflict between the United States and Great Britain seemed like a real possibility all over a pig. Now, thankfully, cooler heads prevailed when the, the local uh, commanders from both sides realized how how absurd it would be to risk full-blown war of something that, over something that trivial, and they ended up agreeing to something like a joint military occupation of San Juan Island, uh, both British and American forces living side by side without any hosti hostilities at all, and they kind of coexisted peacefully until the islands were awarded to the U.S. in 1872. That is a true story. You can look it up on Wikipedia. Uh, friends, some things are worth fighting for, and some things are not. Not every hill is a hill to die on, is it? That's true in the geopolitical realm, in, in your workplace, in your family, and yes, in the life of our church. Yet on the other hand, there are times when relational harmony is secondary to the pursuit of something more primary. You know, within the church, friends, there are times when the relational peace we often enjoy should take a back seat to making sure that the gospel of Jesus is protected and our corporate witness to the gospel is maintained. You know, sometimes true gospel unity can only be maintained through the sharp edges of biblical convictions with words and actions that treasure God's glory above all. Believe it or not, this is the point of our text today in the book of Joshua. So would you turn there with me? Joshua 22. It's on page 196. If you need a Bible, it's there under the, under the seat in front of you. Page 196, Joshua chapter 22. Friends, today we begin the ending of the book of Joshua. Uh, at this point in the story, uh, Canaan is in the hands of the nation of Israel, as we saw last week in Chapters 13 to 21, God gave his people the land as their inheritance and fulfillment of his ancient promises to Abraham and the patriarchs. As we saw last week, the end of Joshua 21 tells the story. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And now, as we kind of turn to what amounts to the epilogue of Joshua, the accent of the story, well, it, it kind of shifts. It shifts from the faithfulness of God to the response of the people. How will Israel respond to these amazing mercies of the Lord? Well, we'll begin finding out here in chapter 22. Let's, let's read together. We're going to read the entire chapter. It's a little bit long, but we really needed to, to understand the gist of the story. We'll read starting in verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, you've kept all that the, the, the Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that, that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to cling to him and, and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. 
Now to the one half, tri- uh, half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a, pos- a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, iron, with much clothing, divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it. Uh, the people, and the, excuse me, and the people of Israel heard it, said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the, in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh and the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the, the congregation of the Lord, that, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell among the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. Though your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the family of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad, And the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. 
Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priests and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of, t- of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. This is the word of the Lord. What a peculiar story, right? I mean, things are really good at first in the first few verses, right? And then they look really bad. And then it turns out in the end to be really good after all. A civil war is averted and everyone goes their separate ways. You might even be wondering why in the world did the author of Joshua even include this story in the book? It just seems so random, right? It seems like just this was all just kind of a big misunderstanding. But friends, don't think that this episode that we just read is an averted crisis over something silly like, say, a pig. Far from it. Here the stakes are incredibly high. What's at stake in this chapter is nothing less than the right worship of the Lord and the unity of the people of Israel. You know, this theme may seem a little strange to us in 2023, but surely it was relevant to Joshua's original audience. Who was Joshua's original audience? Well, it was likely the generation of Israelites during the time of the judges. Time and time again, what happened in the book of Judges? Israel's hearts defected from the true worship of the Lord to serving idols. And guess what? At the end of Judges, what do we see? Things devolve into a civil war when Israel went to war against the tribe of of Benjamin in, in Judges 20. Friends, this chapter is in the Bible to showcase for future generations of Israel and for us in Christ's church what it looks like to unite around the true and right worship of God. Some things are indeed worth fighting for to achieve godly unity in the congregation. Love for God, rightly applied in the, love, in the life of the church, will in fact fuel the right love for each other. This is the message of Joshua 22. Each week I try to give you a main idea of the sermon text that I trust will become the main idea of, of the sermon itself. So friends, here's the summarizing main idea from Joshua 22. Passionately pursue God-centered unity in the congregation. You don't even need the screen for this. It can go off in a second and you're going to remember it. Passionately pursue God-centered unity in the congregation. Uh, If you've been to RGC for any length of time, you know that this is normally the point in the sermon when I usually give you the outline. Well, today I'm going to do something a little different. Even wild. Okay, we're going we're gonna to simply walk through the text, and I'm going to explain the story, and then afterward, I'm going to make two application points to our life together as a church. Okay, in verse one, who shows up again? Well, it's the two and a half tribes: the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh. By now, if you've been around for this series, you know who they are, right? Moses granted these tribes land east of the Jordan River before the conquest, outside the boundaries of Canaan, on one condition, right? That the fighting men of the two and a half tribes would join the rest of Israel in the conquest, that they would take up arms when the time came. And indeed, that's what happened. Joshua won. Uh, Joshua held these two and a half tribes to their end of the deal. And to their credit, These tribes, they cared more about preserving the unity of Israel than they did their own comfort, their own safety. For the five years of the conquest in the land, the two and a half tribes had faithfully discharged their duty. That's why in these opening verses, Joshua praises them so profusely. He releases them to enjoy the land of their inheritance east of the Jordan. In the opening verses, the picture that Joshua gives of these tribes is overwhelmingly positive, isn't it? The text says in verses 6 and 7 that that Joshua blessed them. He released them to enjoy without reservation all that the Lord had given them in their inheritance and the spoils of the conquest. (coughs) There was only one condition. What's the condition? Well, according to verse 5, 
The only condition for God's ongoing blessing in the land is that these tribes obey the Lord, that they love Him, they cling to Him, that they serve Him with all their heart and soul. And that's why what we see in verse 10 and following seems alarming at first glance, right? All we've seen from the eastern tribes thus far in the story of Joshua is faithfulness to God, loyalty to God, commitment to the people of Israel. And yet, as soon as they left Shiloh, all of that was put into question. Before these tribes had even crossed over into their land, to the east side of the Jordan, they they stopped and and they built an altar on the west side of the Jordan. Verse 11 says that it was a, an altar of imposing size. <laughs> you, get the, you get the sense that it's like a supersized altar, right? Like, honey, I blew up the altar, right? It's huge, right? They wanted the altar to be seen from a distance, apparently. And indeed, it was. Word quickly reached the Western tribes about it. And what do the Western tribes do? Well, they spring into action. Verse 12 says, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh with war on their mind. The Western tribes were prepared to take out their Eastern counterparts. So friends, we we just went (laughs) like in a verse from DEFCON 1 to DEFCON 5, right? I mean, what in the world? Why the visceral reaction? I mean, surely going to war for something like this would be overkill, right? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that the eastern tribes had given the appearance that their hearts were already defecting to the idols of the land. Friends, why did people in the Old Testament build an altar? It's not a trick question. Why did they build an altar? To worship, right? To, to sacrifice. Altars were where sacrifices were made. In a normal situation, to build an altar is to prepare for worship. You say, well, John, what's the big deal with that? Well, the problem is that God had already given his people clear instructions in the Torah about where and how he was to be worshipped. Turn quickly back to Deuteronomy 12. That's on page 156. Deuteronomy 12. In the opening verses of Deuteronomy 12, Moses warns the people not to worship like the nations of Canaan that they're going to dispossess. Don't worship the idols on the various high places, is what he says. These High places were altars on top of the mountains where the false worship took place. In fact, what Israel was to do was to eradicate idolatry by chopping down all those altars, okay? Now look at verse 10, verse 10. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place, singular, the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, and so on. Now, verse 13, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. Seems clear, doesn't it? Friends, what was this singular place of his choosing where the altar was built and sacrifices were to be made and worship was to be given of the Lord at the tabernacle? Where was it? It was in Shiloh. We saw that last week, chapter 18, verse 1. At this point in the story, in redemptive history, God dwelt with his people through his covenant presence in Shiloh. Shiloh was the only place that God was to be worshipped. So the natural assumption is, well, if an altar is built anywhere else other than Shiloh, it's in flagrant disobedience to God's command, and it's likely evidence that God's people had drifted off into apostasy. They had rejected God for idols. You know, verses 13 to 20 confirm this is exactly how the Western tribes read the, the situation. But, but instead of marching straight off to war, what did they do? Well, they wisely send a delegation to the eastern tribes led by Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the high priest. Do any of you remember who Phineas is? Okay. He's the guy who, according to Numbers 25, was single-handedly responsible for stopping the plague of God's wrath 
that broke out among the people when they worshiped the false god Baal at Peor. You know, Baal worship was renowned for sexual orgies attached as part of the false worship. And, and Numbers 25 says that, that when an Israelite man brought a Midianite woman into his tent in the sight of all Israel, Phineas threw a spear through both of them, perhaps right in the middle of their sexual act. Because Phineas was jealous for God's glory, God stopped the plague through his single act of intercession. So, so friends, when the eastern tribe saw Phineas, the son of Eliezer, strolling toward them at the head of the delegation, I mean, their blood must have run cold. Chills must have run down their spine. This dude didn't play. Phineas was serious about the holiness of God and the holiness of the people that reflected it. Look at the delegation's message again in verse 16. Verse 16, uh, back in, in Joshua 22. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel and turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourself an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor? That makes sense in light of Phineas. From which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. And of course, in verse 20, they also remind them of a, of a fresher judgment of the Lord, the, the sin of Achan and the judgment that came from that. So friends, if any of this seems harsh to you, I, I just want to remind us this morning that it is God's prerogative to dictate where and how and when he is worshiped. God's people have never had the autonomous right to kind of create expressions of corporate worship according to their own ingenuity and instincts. Scripture is clear. God regulates true worship according to his word. Under the Old Covenant, this principle is really easy to see, right? With all the detailed instruction about worship through the sacrificial system, all the tedious details given about the construction of the tabernacle and then the temple and so on, Israel was required to worship God according to his word. But friends, in the New Covenant, did you know this principle has not stopped? It's still very much in play. Yes, praise God, that Jesus has replaced the tabernacle or temple as the connecting point between God and man. We're not limited to worship God in Shiloh or in Jerusalem or any specific place because God has granted us entrance into his presence through who? Through the person and work of Christ the Son. And yet, our worship as Christ's people must still be by the book. Now that Christ has come, the only worship that God accepts is worship through the person and work of Jesus. The scripture says there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Friends, God has not given you the liberty to worship him in any other way, but through Christ. You must come to God through faith in Christ alone by virtue of God's undeserved grace to you. I talk to so many people whose concept of their relationship with God is tailored to their own feelings and their own thoughts. They, they think as long as they're well-intentioned, as long as they try hard, as long as they pray, so long as they do good deeds, well, God will accept them. They're good with God. God's, they're, 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 we're, we're pals, right? They can approach God however they want. They expect God to accept them on their terms, not on his terms. But friends, as the creature, you simply don't have the authority to, to set the terms of the relationship with your creator. You must come to the father on his terms through reliance on Jesus, the son's life, his, his death on the cross, his resurrection in your place. Jesus said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the father but by me. You know, even for those of us who have responded to God through faith in Christ, we do not have God's authorization to worship in any old way we choose. Friends, there are commands in the New Testament and patterns of the early church revealed in Scripture that dictate how we worship corporately together. So God has commanded baptized believers to assemble into local churches. 
to gather with these believers on the Lord's Day to to worship and fellowship as we're doing here today. Well done. You're here. You're, You're following the command of the Lord. We call this ongoing commitment to a local assembly of believers church membership. Likewise, King Jesus has only authorized us to do certain things in our worship gatherings. Did you know that? The New Testament expressly calls us to read the Word publicly, to preach the Word, to to sing biblical songs, to to pray biblically shaped prayers, to to see the Word in the ordinances of, of baptism visibly in the Lord's Supper. That's it. That's it. Do you realize that the elders of Redeeming Grace Church, we have not spent a second of time in any of our elders meetings thinking, I wonder what we could do to spice things up a bit, right? I wonder what we could do to, to draw a crowd more effectively. Maybe we should have a dramatic skit or, or, or a, some sort of drama on video. Maybe we should bring in a Christian celebrity who could give us a TED Talk, right? No, friends, our creativity ends where the clarity of Scripture begins. But praise to God, it's in these very means of grace, the reading and preaching of the Word, the congregational singing of biblical songs and praying of biblical prayers, the celebration of the ordinances. These are the means of grace that provide touch points with the gospel of Jesus, which is the lifeblood of our church and the only thing that unifies us together as the people of God. Back to the text. In verses 21 and following, the Eastern tribe's response to the con- confrontation of the Western delegation is it's kind of like a pressure release valve. You, can, you just kind of feel the hot air deflating from the, from the room, right? As it turns out, the altar they built, it wasn't for worship after all, but for a witness. It was just an enormous monument built to remind future generations of the unity of God's people on each side of the river, of their, of their common worship together of the Lord in the place that he chooses. Praise God, the eastern tribes had not drifted into idolatry after all, just the opposite. This altar was not real. <laughs> it was a replica meant to encourage future allegiance to the Lord and the unity of the, of the people of God. See, friends, this entire story is about unity. The eastern tribes built the, the monument to signify unity in the true worship of God. The Western tribes gathered for war because they suspected that idolatry had fractured that unity. Both sides' actions and responses revealed a deep commitment that the congregation of Israel be unified in holiness together. Friends, I think it's instructive that the very first story that we have on record after Israel received their inheritance in the land is about the right type of unity being pursued and protected all costs. The unity modeled in Joshua 22, it's not fluffy or feel-good or conflict-averse. No, this is a God-exalting, truth-loving, holiness-driven, conviction-staking type of unity. It's unity in and around the true worship of God. Friends, this is the very thing that we are to pursue and cultivate in the life of of our church together. God, through the gospel, creates Christian unity. Amen? We read of it this morning in Ephesians 2. In the the very moment that God reconciled us to himself, what did he do? He reconciled us to each other. God made us who were his enemies in our sin and rebellion, his sons and daughters. And by including us in his family, God has made former enemies, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Through Christ's death and by His Spirit, God has made us one. Think of it, friends. Apart from the uniting power of the gospel, all types of boundaries would divide us. Boundaries as large and intimidating as the Jordan River of old. Boundaries of ethnicity. Boundaries of age. Boundaries of wealth and status in society. Boundaries of cultural background. Boundaries of preferences and opinions about all types of things. Friends, just take a look around this room. Take a look, seriously. What an incredibly diverse group of people. And yet, God's grace in Christ has created unity through incredible diversity. Praise God. 
The gospel of Jesus doesn't create cookie-cutter, uniform congregations that look exactly alike and, and think exactly alike by, about every non-gospel thing. No, the good news of Jesus is designed to create diverse local churches who are unified under the banner of King Jesus, whose hearts have been knit together in love through our common participation in Christ through the Spirit. Beloved, the charge given to us as a church is not to create unity. That's Jesus's job. Our job is to maintain unity, to nourish it, to protect it. Put our brother Rich Moreno on the spot. Have you ever been to Rich Moreno's backyard? It's like a botanical garden back there, man. It's incredible, you know? But even Rich, you know, tenderly watering his plants in the backyard did not create the life of their plants. Like, at best, the sunlight and the water caused the seed to germinate and the plants to grow. Or maybe that all happened at Home Depot and Rich just went and bought it and planted it in his pots, right? But what Rich does with those plants matters tremendously in keeping those plants alive and healthy. Friends, that is what we do as a church with the unity that God creates. After telling the Ephesian church about this barrier smashing peace and unity around the gospel, he follows up in chapter 4, verse 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He doesn't say be eager to create the unity. What does he say? Be eager to maintain it. Our job, friends, is as a church is to preserve and protect the bond of peace within the family of God that God through Christ has forged. So in the rest of our time this morning, I just want to give two applications from Joshua 22 about how we as a church can work and pray to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Number one, number one, treasure God's glory more than relational peace. Treasure God's glory more than relational peace. You might be thinking, hold up. You're up there telling us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and, and yet your first application is to treasure God's glory more than relational peace? Yes, exactly. Beloved, the starting point of biblical love and unity is not our feelings. It's not our desire to get along. The starting point of biblical love and unity is God Himself. Biblical unity is not preserved by getting along at all costs. Biblical unity is preserved by honoring God together at all costs. We see this so clearly in the actions of the Western tribes, don't we? You know, I imagine, friends, it would have been way easier and way more comfortable to simply do nothing when they found out that that giant altar had been built at the Jordan. I mean, for crying out loud, we just got settled, right? We just got our stuff unpacked in our new place. We're tired of fighting. We're ready to chill. After all, I'm, I'm thinking, I think things over there will be okay. We can still be pals. No, the Western tribes knew that, it, that if in fact the Eastern tribes were turning to idolatry, God would turn against them in His wrath and the unity of Israel would disintegrate and splinter. They cared more about God being honored than they did about relational peace. They were willing to go to war against idolatry if that's what it took. RGC family, in a similar way, our only hope of maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is that if we treasure God's glory above all. We must fear God and not each other. We must love each other in the truth and with the desire to help each other magnify God's name above all, even when it means confronting error or confronting sin within the church. You know, I, I think the elders of the church bear a special weight in this task within a congregation. Uh, recently, I, I heard a brother pastor that I respect say this to elders, to pastors, if you're not willing to split your church, you shouldn't be an elder. It sounds extreme, right? Because so much of the time, elders are working to hold the church together. It's a provocative statement meant to communicate the reality that elders are called by God to lead in such a way 
that, 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 that were staking the entire congregation's life upon the word of God and fidelity to the gospel of Christ, even when it's not popular. Now, God willing, the church will always be growing in godliness and Christian maturity. And the relationship between the elders and the congregation is, is one of trust and strength. The congregation's commitment is, is to obey God's word. And insofar as the elders teach God's word, well, then the congregation follows. But friends, we have all heard of situations, and perhaps even seen them with our own eyes, experienced them ourselves, when factions within the church or individuals within the church simply don't have that perspective. When their resistance to the elders' teaching and leadership, it damages the, the corporate witness of the church, threatens the church's ability to protect the gospel and proclaim it. Well, in these types of situations, we as elders dare not value relational peace over God's glory. So I just want to remind Steve, who's not here, hopefully he'll listen to the podcast, Bo in the back, who served with me as elders. And exhort all of you brothers who aspire to elder ministry, don't pursue ministry vocationally or as an elder if your pattern is to prize relational harmony over God's glory. Don't do it. Now, God, God willing, those things don't conflict all that often. But when they do, an elder who chooses the path of least resistance is an elder who will put the church in danger. You know, one of the standing requests that we as elders pray for our church and that each and every prayer meeting as we gather together on Sunday night that we pray is that God would grant us here at Redeeming Grace Church a culture of discipling, a culture of discipling. And that simply means an atmosphere at RGC where it's, it's the normal and common thing to do to help one another follow Jesus, where each member of the, in the church is intentionally working for each other's good and so that we all increasingly follow Christ and are conformed to his image. Friends, discipling is what Christians do. Discipling is not Navy SEAL Christianity. It's normal, biblical Christianity to help each other follow Jesus. But you know what this type of culture of discipling entails? It means that we not only say the easy, positive, encouraging things to help each other, although encouragement is so important, isn't it? But it also means that as occasion requires, as we develop Discipling relationships, we're willing to say the difficult things to one another. It means that because we want each other to glorify Christ above all, we are willing to risk relational ease to exhort and to warn and to correct. We love one another enough to tell each other the truth. Brother, I've noticed that the last few times we've been together, how short you've been with your wife and with your kids. It, is that the type of leadership you want to mark your life? Sister, it seems like your attendance at our gatherings has been sporadic recently. How's your walk with Jesus? Brother, I've never seen you at one of our prayer meetings. Is there a compelling reason why you don't gather with the church to pray? Sister, what you just told me, that, that really wasn't edifying. In fact, it was gossip. Can I, can I encourage you? to believe and hope the best about this other person in this situation? I say, John, what you're describing in those scenarios is a far cry from apostasy, right? From walking away from Jesus altogether. Well, yes, in a way that's true. But don't you realize, friends, that walking away from Jesus does not happen overnight? It's always a slow burn. An incremental deadening of the heart's affections toward Christ a repeated, a repeated searing of the conscience, the drip, 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 yielding to sin. Yes, friends, it's true that love, love covers a multitude of sins. Not every sin warrants a confrontation. Sometimes the best thing to do as a Christian is simply to pray for that person and wait for God to work in their life. We need wisdom to know which is right in that regard, right? But beloved, I'm asking, do you feel the responsibility in your spiritual bones for the spiritual good of your fellow church members? Do you treasure God's glory in their life more than relational peace? Just, just last week, I heard a, of a situation where two brothers in the church uh, went over to the home of another brother and in a spirit of gentleness and kindness listed their concern about uh, a pattern of life in the in that brother. Praise God. 
Praise God. Not only were they faithful, the brother responded in humility. You know, what they did, that's not a lack of love. Friend, that's a heart overflowing with love for God's glory and that brother's good. You know, perhaps the way that we as a congregation must often feel this tension is when we're called to exercise church discipline for a brother or sister that's entrenched in unrepentant sin, so grievous that it brings into question the credibility of their profession of faith. We just we can't tell if they're a Christian or not because they're not repentant. And Jesus is clear, isn't he, in Matthew 18 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 about what's supposed to happen in such situations. And we're going to look at Matthew 18 here in a few weeks when we resume our study in Matthew, where it talks about these escalating steps of confrontation and accountability all the way until the brother or sister's sin is, is brought to the church. And at that point, we as a church are presented with a choice, aren't we? Will we love God's glory enough to run after the wayward brother or sister? Will we love them enough in the truth to call them tenderly yet firmly to repentance? And if they refuse to repent of their sin, will we value God's glory being reflected through the holiness of this church enough that we're willing to even sever our Christian fellowship with them as a church, which means we remove them from the Lord's table? It's hard, isn't it? Church family, I just want to commend you. I think the overarching pattern of our life together is that you indeed do treasure God's glory more than relational ease and peace. But friends, in order for the fruit of holiness to increase in our hearts, in order for the right type of unity and love to continue to grow in this church, we must have a passion for God's glory above relational peace. It's the only way for gospel unity to flourish. Number two, number two, sacrifice your rights for the good of others. Sacrifice your rights for the good of others. One of the most remarkable parts of this story in Joshua 22 is the Western delegation's words to the Eastern tribes in verse 19. So in verse 18, they appeal to the fact that if You know, the Eastern tribes rebel against the Lord in idolatry. The Lord's wrath is going to break out against the entire congregation. But then look at verse 19. I mean, this is incredible. I love this. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land. Pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourself a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourself an altar other than the altar of the Lord your God. You see what's happening? The delegation essentially says, listen, listen, if if your inheritance east of the Jordan is unclean through the idolatry of the peoples remaining in the land, if, if you're tempted, brothers, if you're tempted, sisters, to stray from the Lord by living there, oh, by all means, Won't you come back inside the land of Canaan and take for yourself a possession with us? Friends, do you understand what an incredible statement that is? If the two and a half tribes had taken the delegation up on their offer, it would have meant less land, a smaller inheritance for the rest of the nine and a half tribes. And yet, the spiritual good of the eastern tribes mattered more to the western tribes than how much land they own. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's an offer based on sacrificial, self-giving love. It's a love that says, you know what? I'm going to work for the spiritual good of that person, no matter what it costs me. I'm going to work for his or her good, no matter the risk attached to it. Friends, it's, it's simply not enough to have a zeal for truth if it's not accompanied by a deep heart of love. You know, a pastor friend recently gave the Give the example in his pastoral ministry. When he was on the phone with a fellow elder and they were discussing an upcoming conversation that this, this pastor friend was going to have with a new believer, a new a young brother in the Lord to, to stop living with his girlfriend and to repent of his sexual sin. And he said that the elder on the phone with him responded, yes, you need to have that conversation. But are you willing to let this brother live with you for a while? if he responds to your exhortation and obedience and moves out. In other words, truth-telling 
rings hollow without self-giving love. Beloved, because we live in an individualistic, consumeristic age, we often bring our individualism and our consumerism into the church, don't we? Church is about my preferences being met and my felt needs being looked after. I don't like that hymn. I'm just not going to sing it as eagerly as the ones I do like. The elders have structured home groups in a way that really annoys me. I'm just not going to go. This church doesn't have an array of programs and social events for my age group and my life stage. I think I'll start looking for another one. Oh, friends, be careful. God has not called us to be in a community that affirms our preferences. He's called us to commit ourselves in love to a community of faith, which will by nature require us to sacrifice for each other's good. I mentioned it earlier, the church of Jesus Christ is not comprised of natural friends, like so many of the social structures and institutions of the world are. In many ways, the church is comprised of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. You know, a church made up of natural friends says little about the power of the gospel. Yet the gospel-revealing community of natural enemies is going to require sacrifice in nearly every area of our life. Let me give you some ways that you might think about this. So each Lord's Day as we gather, instead of talking to only those in your friend group, what if you sacrificed your comfort, kind of went outside your comfort zone and purposely reached out to meet someone and to talk to someone, to connect to someone you're not naturally drawn to? But better yet, what if you invited that person or that family over for dinner or invited them out to lunch after the service? Friends, what if instead of hoarding your time and your resources and energy for yourself, you dispense those things to eagerly serve others? Our society would tell you your time is more important than his or her time. But surely that's not what Jesus would say. What if you altered your habits or rhythms for the good of others? So, so maybe your pattern is, you know, you're very kind of, regimented, rhythmic person, right? Every service after every service, you always, you know, go home for lunch, right? Or you always have to make sure that the little guy is down for a nap at the exact same time every day. Friends, might sacrificial gospel love flex a little bit for more of an opportunity to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? I think it would. I think it would. What I'm saying, friends, is if your church membership doesn't cost you anything, if it never requires sacrifice on your part, I'm afraid that you've not yet understood what belonging to the body of Christ is really all about. Praise God for the unity of our church. Friends, we have enjoyed, I think, what I would call a God-given unity for several years. Praise the Lord. But if our church is going to be marked by this oneness of heart and mind for the coming decades, it will only be because... In, Instead of asserting our rights, we gladly sacrifice them for the good of each other. Friends, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more that we could say about this passage. If we had time, we could, we could look at the Eastern tribes' humility when confronted. Did you see that? They didn't, they didn't arrogantly scoff at the Western tribes. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you think that we would sin like this? No, in verse 23, they say, if we are in rebellion against God, then please don't spare us from that judgment. Let the Lord take vengeance on us. In their desire for God to be glorified, the Eastern tribes evidence a profound self-skepticism and teachability and humility. But you know what? At the end of the day, at the end of the day, what gives us hope as Christians, what encourages our faithfulness to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, it's not the example of the tribes of Israel. In fact, these tribes eventually descended into apostasy. The kingdom of Israel splintered. They were exiled eventually. Instead, our great hope and encouragement is in the one who came as the true and better Israel, the one whose zeal for God's glory was always wed to a humble, sacrificial love for others. The one who embodied God's glory, a, a glory full of what? Grace and truth together. Friends, aren't you glad that Jesus did not 
prize, relational peace over God's glory. I mean, there would be no cross, no sacrifice of sins if Jesus had chosen the path of least resistance. Aren't you glad that that Jesus didn't assert his rights, but that he sacrificially gave them up for our eternal good? Philippians 2 says that in his humility, Jesus did not account equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant in his humanity. He became obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Beloved, may this type of mindset define our life together at RGC. The mindset found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sufficiency of your word for our life, our eternal life, and for our godliness, our growth in grace. So Father, we thank you for the authority and sufficiency of your word in a strange and peculiar text like this one, Father, for the the truth that it teaches us, the principles that it it unveils, even the way that it it points us to the unity uh, of the local church that you have given. Oh, Father, may we continue to be a church family that is dedicated to maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Oh, Lord, guard us from the type of fear of man and the type of self-love that would keep us from pursuing your glory over relational peace. Oh, Father, in our discipling relationships, as we are in each other's lives to help each other follow Jesus, oh, Father, may we be willing to say the hard things from time to time. Give us courage in that regard. Lord, may we be dedicated to the true and right worship of you together. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would also be sacrificing our rights and our even our the things that may we hold dear to ourselves and preferences and opinions, Father, for the sake of the good of the whole church and for the good of others. Oh, Lord, may we be quick to do that. Uh, strip from us the type of, 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 of pride and self-centeredness, Lord, that would uh, work only for the good of ourselves. Lord, we want your gospel to shine from this place. And we know that the only way that we'll do that is if the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace sparkles with all the glories that the gospel brings it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.